Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A senior U.S. defense official says there are no more signs of a Russian military presence near the Ukrainian capital for the first time since the February 24th invasion. But the Pentagon projects the troops that pulled back across the border are now getting ready to launch a major offensive in eastern Ukraine in the coming weeks. NPR's Tom Bowman reports on the U.S.'s latest assessment of the conflict. A senior Pentagon official says that thousands of Russian soldiers who retreated into either Belarus or Russia are likely preparing for a new offensive in the Donbass area of eastern Ukraine. It's uncertain how long it will take before the new offensive begins. As Ukrainian forces re-enter towns and cities outside Kyiv, they're finding evidence that Russian troops killed civilians, some of them with their hands tied behind their backs. The official says it's uncertain whether the killings were ordered by commanders as part of a Russian strategy or were carried out by soldiers lashing out at civilians as they fled. Tom Bowman, NPR News. The U.S. financial system is now blocked off to more Russian banks and wealthy people, including Vladimir Putin's grown children. NPR's Asma Khalid reports President Biden's ordering more sanctions, even though previous sanctions have not done much to get Putin to stop the deadly assault. These are full blocking sanctions that affect any assets that touch the U.S. financial system, no matter what currency that they're in. Um, Russia will also be prohibited from making any debt payments with funds under U.S. jurisdiction, which could force Russia into default. In total, a senior administration official told reporters this morning that they've now blocked about two-thirds of Russia's banking system. But there is still, however, a carve-out in all of this for energy. NPR's Asma Khalid reporting. President Biden has announced that he will extend the pause on federal student loan payments, interest, and collections. Here's NPR's Cory Turner. Biden said he is extending the pause through August 31st. He said he worries without it, quote, student loan borrowers would face significant economic hardship and delinquencies and defaults could threaten Americans' financial stability. This will push the break in loan payments to at least two and a half years. Many experts believe it's unlikely that even come August, Biden will want to resume payments for tens of millions of voters so close to midterm elections. The Education Department also unveiled a plan to give about 7 million borrowers who are in default a fresh start. When the freeze ends, these borrowers will be automatically returned to good standing and collections on their loans will not resume. Corey Turner, NPR News. Police in Sacramento, California now believe at least five people were involved in a suspected gang-related shootout. It was the deadliest mass shooting on record for the city over the weekend. At least six people were killed, 12 were wounded, including one of two brothers arrested this week in connection with the deadly shooting. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. School officials in Brookline have notified police after a teacher and a student found hate-based graffiti at the high school. The superintendent's office says the graffiti was discovered on the whiteboard of a classroom this morning. In a letter to parents, school officials say, quote, this sickening display of hate will not be tolerated. Non-English speakers who are hospitalized with COVID-19 are at greater risk than English-speaking patients to be more seriously affected by the disease. Researchers at Mass General Brigham studied almost 10,000 patients and found COVID patients who do not speak English have a 35% greater chance of dying or requiring intensive care. The Boston Calling Music Festival has named a new headline act for its Memorial Day weekend performances. Nine Inch Nails will take to the stage in Alston Friday, May 27th. They'll replace Foo Fighters, who dropped out last month after the unexpected death of the band's longtime drummer, Taylor Hawkins. The festival will also feature The Strokes and Metallica. 
in the forecast. Celtics played the Bulls in Chicago tonight, 8 o'clock start time. The Bruins are off, and the Sox are resting up for tomorrow's season opener. They'll be on the road in the Bronx to play the Yankees. Should be pretty crummy out there through the rest of the afternoon and evening. Gray and damp overnight tonight. Clouds lasting until dawn, about 40 degrees. Then for tomorrow, looks like we might have more April showers. Light breezes could make it to about 51 degrees. Still damp on Friday, topping 60 degrees, so a little bit milder. 45 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. At Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE, comparison rates not available in all states or situations. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins with Bob Oaks. And Bob, we only have just a couple of minutes. I'm going to turn it over to you because we have this really good offer on the table right now for this day, first day of our fund drive. That's right, Lisa, and good afternoon, everyone. It's a dollar-for-dollar match. If you give monthly to WBUR, your dollars for all the news that you're listening to on WBUR every day of the week are doubled. So if you make a $10 a month contribution for the news here on WBUR, it's actually worth 20 If you make a $20 contribution, it's worth 40 You know how to do the math. Now just dial the number. Make the gift of the pledge that doubles your contribution. Thank Thanks to generous Murrow Society listeners who are putting up their money to encourage you to give on this, the first day of this super short fundraiser. The number to call is 1-800-909-9287 or give online right now at WBUR.org. And Bob mentioned the generosity of our listeners in the Murrow Society. And thanks to all of you who are contributing to this so we can we can uh, entice those of you who have yet to give to give right now, one 800 909 287wbur.org. We also want to thank you for your generous gifts in the past that have been allowing us to cover things that happen that we don't expect, such as what's been going on in Ukraine. And we have a lot of reporters who are over there right now, producers, engineers as well, who are providing news such as the story that's just about to come up uh, on uh, the future of a monument in Ukraine that was a gift from the Russian government. And this is the kind of story that shines a light on the greater issue of the attack on Ukraine um, and what is going to be happening in the future. So this is just one of the one of the places where your money takes us. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Get your call in while we have this matching offer on the table. 1-800-909-9287. If you've given to WBUR in the past, as Lisa was just talking about, don't you agree that your support has created something bigger than the sum of the dollars you've given, you've given us? We're proving that right now with all the coverage of the news. Support it at 1-800-909-9287 or at WBUR.org as we go back to the news right now. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with a part-time MBA from Babson. Rank the top Northeast graduate school for entrepreneurship by the Princeton Review and Entrepreneur Magazine. Attend online or in person. Apply by April 18th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Scott Detrow in Kyiv, Ukraine. I'm standing in central Kyiv near Maidan, the monument and public square that was so central to Ukraine's 2014 revolution. 
Off in the distance, there's a big titanium arch stretched over a park. It's a gift from Russia. Built in the early 1980s, it's meant to symbolize the friendship between Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, there is no friendship right now. After Russia invaded Crimea and eastern regions, activists painted a big crack across the top of the arch. And this week, with all the details uncovered about Bucha and other Kyiv suburbs, the relationship between the two countries feels much more than cracked. It feels destroyed. The military, what they did, I'm not really sure how quickly I will be able to forgive them or forget this thing. That's Nadia Stasio, who stopped to talk to us. She's 45 and lives in Kyiv, but she's originally from Mariupol, a city in the south under a devastating siege by Russian troops. Her dad is still there, and she hasn't heard from him in a month. I asked Nadia what she thinks should be done with the arch after the war. I think we should keep it just for the sake of remembering that it had happened, you know. We, yeah, we can't destroy it, but what's different it's going to be if we forget it all. So I believe, in my opinion, the best thing is to keep it and have it as a reminder. Not everyone feels as generous. Vladimir Anatolievich is a senior lieutenant in the Ukrainian military. He's out with three of his fellow soldiers. And he has a very specific suggestion for what to do with the arch, but it's not radio-appropriate. There can be no friendship at all. I'm pretty sure about it. The only thing I have left in me is pretty much hatred only. We're never going to be a brothers again. At this stage, it's not possible that we're going to be even a good neighbors. Anatolievich says he fought near the town of Bucha before it was liberated. He says he's glad the suburbs north of Kiev are now in Ukrainian hands, but that there's still a long way to go. And there are still more grim details emerging from those towns every day. NPR's Becky Sullivan went to one of those towns today, Borodyanka. Hey, Becky. Hey. What did you see there? Well, this little town, it's about 50 miles northwest of Kiev. Ukrainian officials have said that it's another example of what they say is Russia's indiscriminate targeting of civilians and that there, there could be quite a few dead people here. Um, the city is on a highway crosswords, which is part of what made it nice for people who live here. It's easy access to Kiev, but also, of course, for attractive to Russians coming in from Belarus in their attempt to take the capital mm -hmm. city. So today I started at that main crossroads where I could already see some pretty destroyed buildings. And one of the first people I ran into there was Arsen Belevsky, who is the director of a Polish community school in the town. He evacuated after Russian troops arrived and he only just got back in the last few days, but he pointed down the main street and he told me, this used to be a quiet and beautiful place, but if you walk down there now, you'll see some very terrifying things. Um, here's a little bit of him. He's saying that they mined everything. Uh, they mined the doors to houses, entrances to private apartments. And if you walk down the street, you'll see all of these bombed places and just know that there's likely still people there, but they're no longer alive. And he looked down at my camera and he said, there's no photo or video that could capture the atmosphere here right now. And you know what? It turned out to be right. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says that there could be just as many civilians dead in Borodyanka as there are in Bucha. What did you see uh, to back that up? Yeah, it's definitely different than Bucha, I'll say, where the worry is mm -hmm. more about Russian soldiers shooting civilians indiscriminately on the streets, like execution style. But here in Borodyanka, the, the concern is more about the targeting of civilian buildings. And just to give you a sense, you know, on this main street along a mile or so of it, it's lined with houses and it's lined with also these big Eastern European style apartment blocks that are these long, narrow buildings, six or seven stories tall. 
um, with broadsides facing the street. And so not one, but several of these buildings were hit in the same just kind of shocking way, which are these huge strikes right to the center of the building, leaving each end standing, blackened with the windows blown out, air conditioners hanging down. Um, but then the whole middle of the building is now just a gigantic pile of rubble spilling out onto the street. The, the walls just cleaved away cleanly. And looking at that, it's very hard to imagine people trapped in that surviving. Um, emergency yeah. crews are going through the rubble now, but officials are very pessimistic about the odds of finding anybody alive, and they think that hundreds could be dead. Aside from the devastation, what did people say about the fighting there? Well, the Russians came in very fast, they said, um, and the fighting began on the, just the third or fourth day of the invasion late in February. I spoke to a territorial defense volunteer who said he signed up right away on the 24th. Um, he was an old veteran, so they let him sign up. Um, but unfortunately, the armed forces just couldn't get up there in time and in the numbers needed to really stop that advance. So instead, it was volunteers like him fighting with the arms they had and fighting with Molotov cocktails. And they're just no match for the Russian forces who were then very fresh and the Russian jets coming in and bombing the buildings. And, and the Russians were just able to take this town very easily. And then on the other side, just this last week or two, Russians essentially withdrew on their own. And Ukrainian officials say that Ukraine didn't have to do much fighting to take it back. So, Becky, yesterday you saw Bucha. Today you saw Borodyanka. A lot of people we're talking to in Ukraine are, are really worried that these towns aren't unique. They're, they're just the places where this devastation can be documented at this point. Do you think that's a valid concern? Oh, I think it, it couldn't be more right. I mean, I, we already know that we're going to see a few more things like this when it's safe to get into places like Mariupol, for instance, um, or there's a few journalists in Kharkiv. We're seeing images coming out of there that are like this. Chernihiv recently liberated, according to Pentagon officials. And these are just the big cities. I think there's going to be a lot more of this. And analysts have warned that as Russia gets more and more desperate to be able to claim a victory, any victory of any kind, that it may intensify this kind of all-out flattening of towns um, in this effort to seize the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine at any cost. NPR's Becky Sullivan here in Kyiv. Thanks so much for your reporting. You're welcome. States across the country are moving to restrict abortion access as the Supreme Court considers overturning Roe v. Wade. Oklahoma's legislature sent a bill to the governor's desk yesterday banning almost all abortions and imposing prison time on abortion providers. Idaho's ban on most abortions will go into effect later this month. Meanwhile, neighboring Oregon, like other liberal states, is preparing to receive an influx of patients seeking abortions. The state recently committed to investing millions of dollars to fortify its abortion infrastructure. Kadia Riddle reports. The Oregon legislature swiftly approved this funding measure, but the advocates behind it say it's part of a strategy they've been advancing for more than a year. This conversation started to take place really immediately after Justice Ginsburg's passing. Christelle Allen is with the group Pro-Choice Oregon. She is part of a coalition that led this legislative effort. The new law allocates $15 million to helping both the patients receiving abortions and the providers facilitating them. This situation that our state has never been in, this country has never been in, is going to require resources and the creation of new best practices. 
Washington and California are among several states that have also passed laws to strengthen abortion access recently. But the Oregon law is the first of its kind in the nation. The money will help pay travel costs for people coming from states like Idaho for abortions. It will also help fund places like the Lilith Clinic in Portland. So we're in our um, recovery area, which has this lovely blue color. Christine Rewer is a medical assistant here. I think this is like the loveliest room in the clinic. It's very calm. We have a little fountain. Patients can take in a bird's eye view of downtown Portland from here while recovering. This is the only clinic in the state that offers later abortions. Rewar says she's committed to this work. I love it. I didn't realize it was what I wanted to do. And then I started doing it and I was like, oh, this is incredible. This is what I want to do forever. For some, these kinds of clinics are the only option. They come here to end a pregnancy when they find out a fetus has a life-threatening abnormality, for example. And the work has unique challenges. Our door is always locked. We always check, like, ID at the door. I notice you have a security camera here. We do. We have a little nest that points at our front door. Security is one expense the new money could cover. The state of Oregon has designated it for creative uses exactly like this. What we also, though, are concerned about are the, you know, the small percentage of people where, you know, that violence is possible. Mm -hmm. Grayson Dempsey is a spokesperson for the Lilith Clinic. She says security will become paramount if facilities have to close in other states. Protesters across the country will be left with fewer targets. We not only need to hold the line here, but we need to be prepared to be the focus of that attention. Other providers say this new money could lead to systemic changes in the state's health care system. Dr. Helen Belanca was an abortion provider. Then she took a job at a clinic in the town of Hood River, Oregon. I uh, wanted to continue providing abortions in my practice, but that was not possible. Hood River is a small town of orchards and farms. Many of her patients were migrant farm workers. But that clinic was federally funded, and restrictions prevent federal money from paying for abortions. Blanca couldn't offer the procedure to her patients there. I think this fund is so important because it would allow some flexibility for communities to have access to that care. She's since left that job. Belanca says using state dollars to pay abortion costs would offer a workaround to federal restrictions. It's not about not having a clinician willing to perform an abortion. It's about having systems in place and infrastructure in place to provide it. The $15 million from the state could also support telemedicine or help buy ultrasound equipment for rural clinics. Christelle Allen from Pro-Choice Oregon says it's time for states that support abortion to bring a full-court press. This gives us a chance to actually start being an incubator for solutions that we then can help uh, support other states, hopefully, in passing and moving forward. The Supreme Court could overturn Roe in a few months. In that scenario, Oregon could see a more than 200 percent increase in incoming abortion patients from all over the country. That's according to the Abortion Rights Guttmacher Institute. That disruption could set in motion a health care crisis in every state. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon. The Senate could vote as early as tomorrow to confirm Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. A look back at her confirmation tomorrow on Morning Edition. 
And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stock slid for a second day today. The Dow lost 0.42%, 145 points, to finish the day at 34,497. S&P gave up about a full percent to close at 4481. Nasdaq slid 2.25 percent to finish the day at 13,889. In the forecast, lots of gray out there today. Showers lasting into the night. Overnight lows about 41 degrees, not too far from where it is right now. Highs tomorrow about 51 with more light rain. Friday, look for more clouds, more showers. Could make it to about 62 degrees. 45 degrees now in Boston at 421. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com gbfb. The ICA with A Place for Me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant figurative paintings, icaboston.org. And Worcester Polytechnic Institute, whose research approach is like nowhere else, meaning their impact solves problems in ways others don't. wpi.edu slash future. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, in rural farming regions, dangerous chemicals from fertilizer have made their way into water sources. That story, one of the many still to come on WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins with Bob Oaks, and we are here to invite you to make a pledge to get us off to a rollicking start on this day one of our fun drive. And we have a special reason for you to pledge right now, Bob. Well, Lisa, uh, uh, generous listeners have given WBUR their money to match monthly contributions uh, dollar for dollar on this, the first day of the WBUR spring fund, uh, spring fund Drive. So we're asking you to give so that your money to support the news here on WBUR is worth twice as much. You give $10 a month, it's worth 20 You give $40 a month, it's worth $80 for the news here on WBUR. We're asking you to not let this opportunity slip through your fingers. We're asking you to give to WBUR right now at 1-800-909-9287 or give at WBUR.org. Think of the two stories you just heard on WBUR, two of the major issues that are rattling the U.S right now. The second story, of course, uh, was a slice of the abortion issue. The first story was on Ukraine. NPR correspondent Eleanor Beardsley has spent a lot of time in Ukraine over the last few years during Russia's annexation of Crimea back in 2014, and of course right now covering the invasion. And she talked about how listener support helps her cover the stories and do what she does for you. Knowing that it, this is not a government radio, you know, like, you know, sponsored by the government, it's sponsored by the American people. And we just knowing that that support is there emotionally, it gives you backing physically, literally, you, you have, you know, the means to have the proper equipment and cars. You need a good car when you're driving around a country at war. Things like that are very important. The physical, the emotional, the, the mental support that you know you're getting from listeners is just, I can't even say how much it means. It means everything. And to know that people are listening and counting on you to bring the voices from the ground in these places back to America so that we can be better informed, our country can make better decisions, it means everything to listener support, really. You know, Eleanor Beardsley, we can send, and NPR can send Eleanor Beardsley to Ukraine or wherever else uh, stories are breaking around the world 
thanks to you when you give to WBUR. Some of the money goes here. Some of the money goes to NPR. You're helping to pay for all the news coverage when you give, and especially right now when generous other listeners will double any contribution that you give, monthly contribution that you give, when you give it now at WBUR.org or at 1-800-909-9287. What Eleanor said there is, is so interesting and so true that everything that uh, you can provide for people like Eleanor Beersley, like Frank Lankford, like uh, uh, Eric Westervelt, anybody who is covering the war in Ukraine right now is a lifesaver. Um, there, there are combat training courses that reporters have to take before they go into situations like a war zone. And one of the first things you learn is don't ever get into a car without a seatbelt. So we're not talking about, you know, sort of fancy, uh, even up-armored vehicles here. We're talking about the basics, at least, that reporters need to cover the story. And more than that, we need to keep our people safe so they can continue to report what's happening and we can bear witness to that because they are one 800 909-9287-WBUR.org. Your money goes to the stories that you hear on the air, including the crucial stories, especially right now, from Ukraine. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And don't forget, right now, when you pledge, this being day one of our fund drive, we have a special offer on the table. Your contribution, your monthly contribution, will be matched dollar for dollar. If you can possibly swing $25 a month, it becomes 50 for us. If you can do $100 a month, it becomes 200 and so on. So, Please do our our Morrow Society members, those who have generously made this offer, do them proud by taking them up on it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. On farms across the country, it's fertilizer that grows the crops that keep grocery shelves stocked and small towns alive. But fertilizer also contains chemicals that can leach into nearby drinking water. As David Condos of the Kansas News Service reports, when it comes time to clean up that water, some small towns struggle with the costs. In most parts of the country, you can turn on just about any faucet and expect water that's clear, clean, and relatively cheap. But as chemicals leach into rural water supplies, a growing number of small towns face a different and very expensive reality. Take Haviland, Kansas, a town of about 700 people. Fifteen years ago, its drinking water went over the federal limit for nitrate, a chemical in most farm fertilizers. So the state made Haviland build a water treatment plant. The price tag? Two and a half million dollars, or roughly $3,500 per resident. Inside the plant, former Mayor Robert Ellis walks through a maze of pipes toward a small meter on the wall. This is showing what our nitrates are right now, 8.4. Today, Haviland's water is cleaner, safer, but Ellis says that when most residents see the plant, they just think about how much it's costing them each month. 
They've been drinking out of the garden hose for all their lives. They don't worry about the nitrates. All they look at is their water bill. And those water bills have just about tripled. Dozens of nearby towns have found themselves in a similar situation, caught between massive costs and small budgets, and between the way traditional farming sustains their economies while channeling unwanted chemicals into their drinking water. Bigger cities already have sophisticated treatment plants to remove those chemicals, but most small towns don't. Historically, the water they pump from underground has been pure enough to drink without being treated. But in many places, that's no longer true, and towns like Haviland are left to pick up the multi-million dollar tab. And it's not just in Kansas. Nitrate contaminates drinking water in farming regions from California to Pennsylvania. An Iowa State University study shows that since the 1940s, the use of nitrogen fertilizer nationwide has increased 34-fold. We can't be surprised that we have increasing levels of nitrate in our water when we know that we're putting down increasing amounts of nitrogen on the land. David Swirtney is an environmental health researcher at the University of Iowa and says tap water standards put in place more than two decades ago aren't stringent enough. New research shows drinking nitrate for years can lead to cancer and birth defects, even at concentrations below current limits. But even if every farmer stopped fertilizing tomorrow, it could take decades for the nitrates already in underground water supplies to dissipate. And for farm towns that have not seen nitrate levels increase yet, researchers say it's likely just a matter of time. Three years ago, Rod Huffman got his own dreaded letter from the state. One of the water wells in his small town of Oakley, Kansas, had too much nitrate. We're at well six, which was over the MCL limit. Oakley could try to push back against the regulators and buy some more time. But as nitrate levels keep going up, Huffman says there's no point in delaying the inevitable. He says his town will build its own plant and in preparation has already doubled residents' water bills. It's not going to be cheap, but it's cheaper than not doing nothing at all. You know, it's just not going to get any better. And with fertilizer still a critical part of farming, he expects more rural towns to face this challenge soon. For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Oakley, Kansas. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting. Spring event with new vintage and antique hand-knotted rugs, now through April 9th in Boston, Salem, Framingham, and LandryandArkari.com. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Foreign ministers from NATO nations are meeting in Brussels this week for talks on helping Ukraine and neighboring countries who might be pressured by Russia. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says he anticipates that the war will last a long time. We need to be prepared for a long uh, haul. We need to support Ukraine, sustain our sanctions, and strengthen our uh, defenses and uh, our deterrence. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken, also in Brussels, says the Allies will continue to be united. The Ukrainian military is accusing a mayor in eastern Ukraine of treason. And Piers Eder Peralta reports from Lviv as the war shifts to the east, loyalties are being tested. 
The military administration in Luhansk says the mayor of Rubizhne not only joined the invading Russians, but it says he handed over information about Ukrainian activists. From the beginning of this war, Ukraine has been worried about what it calls saboteurs, people living in Ukraine who might help the Russians. But in many cities, local administrators have resisted occupation, sometimes ending up dead. But now there's evidence Russian troops have been retreating from the Kyiv area. They're believed to be moving east next, where Russia has been supporting separatists for years, and where Ukrainian authorities are increasingly accusing local officials of treason. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Lviv. House Democrats are accusing oil companies of ripping off the American people and putting profits before production as Americans suffer from higher gas prices fueled by the war in Ukraine. Oil executives testifying before Congress for the second time in six months say that oil is a global market and that oil companies don't dictate prices. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Graduate students at MIT have voted to form a union. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, organizers hope collective bargaining will help them obtain affordable housing, dental insurance, and workplace protections. If student organizers at MIT were working overtime in the lab in recent days, it was partly conducting research, partly getting out the vote. In the end, nearly 1,800 students, two-thirds, voted yes. Doctoral student Lily Chin says working conditions for graduate students have deteriorated since she arrived at MIT as an undergraduate in 2013. So, she says, a union is a worthy experiment. With a new thing like a union, there's always going to be risks and there's no guarantees. But if the system's not working, like we're all engineers here, we know we can design it better. In a campus-wide letter, MIT administrators pledged to bargain in good faith with the union after it's certified. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey is one of six attorneys general threatening legal action against the National Football League over its treatment of female employees. The coalition sent a letter to League Commissioner Roger Goodell expressing concern over things such as unwanted touching of female employees and limited hiring and promotion of women in the NFL. The league says it's committed to making sure it's diverse, inclusive, and free from discrimination and harassment. Boston is working to expand access to green job training for students in the city's vocational schools. Today, city officials announced the Madison Park Technical Vocational High School in Roxbury will offer electric vehicle maintenance classes this fall. Boston's Chief of Environment, Energy, and Open Space, Mariama White-Hammond, says these skills are already in demand. I actually own an electrical vehicle, and I have to drive pretty far out of Boston to get it serviced. I would much rather see it serviced right here in my own community by young people who grew up in the same neighborhoods that I did. The city also announced it will convert 20 of its school buses to electric vehicles next year. It plans to have an entirely electric bus fleet within the next eight years. And Boston's public golf courses are ready to open for the season. The mayor's office said today that both the George Wright course in Hyde Park and the William Devine course in Dorchester have now opened with tea times available online. The pro shops and restaurants are open with sanitation stations throughout the clubhouses. In the forecast not golf weather at all. Lots of rain over the next couple days. Tonight, patchy drizzle and rain taking turns, dipping a few degrees to about 40. Tomorrow should bring more showers, strong winds, highs about 51. Then clouds on Friday, more showers, inching to about 62 degrees. 45 degrees now in Boston at 435.
WBUR supporters include the Mass Art Auction, over 325 works by LaVon Jenkins, John Walker, Emily Evelith, and more. Online bidding is open at massartauction.org. Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As the situation in Ukraine continues to unfold, NPR is there. Our journalists cannot always rely on power, internet access, or easy travel. That's why we provide training and equipment to help keep them safe and connected. We are able to keep information flowing your way thanks to donors who support this NPR station. Here's how you can support this vital coverage. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And when you do that, you are supporting not only stories such as the one coming up from Ukraine about how more than 15,000 babies have been born in Ukraine since the start of the war. And at a maternity hospital, there are new parents who are talking about the long road it took just to get them to safety. You're also going to be hearing about the young poets in America, this being National Poetry Month. We introduce listeners to poets competing to be the next National Youth Poet Laureate. We've got great stories that come up covering all aspects of life, national, international, and local as well. That is funded with your support right now, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Bob Oaks. Hi, Lisa. You know, and you have to ask yourself, uh, isn't WBUR worth it, worth, worthy of your pledge, especially right now when we're telling you the stories that tell the truth? Uh, you got to ask yourself, isn't that important when there are, you know, charges and countercharges over what's happening in the war and the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine? We've uh, rarely seen situations like this before. We're reporting with consistent intensity, and we need your financial support. It doesn't have to be a lot. A lot. If you give us 10 or $20 a month to WBUR, you become a sustaining listener, and you have an impact, especially right now when, thanks to a group of generous listeners, a monthly gift right now, this afternoon, at this moment, is doubled. You give that $10, it's worth $20 a month for the news. You give that $20, it's worth $40 a month for the news. Your dollar's going twice as far if you give right now while this money from other generous listeners is available. Make the gift of your pledge at 1-800-909-9287. Make the gift of your pledge for all things considered in Lisa Mullins at WBUR.org. And we are so grateful to those members of the Murrah Society who have pledged their support. They are going to be matching your monthly gift dollar for dollar right now, so please make the call 1-800-909-9287. 9287 or go online at wbur.org. It's it's not a coincidence that we have such strong financial forces behind us as those members of the Murrah Society and one of the strongest local newsrooms in the country. So every dollar counts, not just from, from Murrah Society members or some of the higher donors, from everybody who pledges. Even if it's a, a $25 a month pledge, we so appreciate what you can give. And especially right now, your money goes that much further, doubled. So your $25 pledge a month becomes $50 a month. Uh, if you can do $75 a month, it becomes $150 a month for us. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Layla Falden. It's exciting to start something new, a job, a new book, a binge-worthy podcast. If you've never given to this station before, now is a great time to start. Here's how to donate. 
1-800. It's easy as dialing the number or going to the website. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number, the pledge line, or give at the website, wbur.org. And it's so interesting to hear that, Lisa, because just the other day I was uh, speaking to someone who was a recent college graduate uh, in Boston and had a job that paid okay but not so great and still wanted to give to WBUR. So that person was saying, you know, I feel almost guilty about giving $5 a month. And I said, feel guilty. Mm. Feel great about it. Feel terrific that you're supporting something that you believe in. And ask yourself that on the other end of the radio or your listening device right now. No matter what you give, it's equally appreciated. So whether it's that $5 a month, which becomes 10 thanks to generous listeners that are doubling every pledge if we get it this afternoon until 7 o'clock, or if you can give 20 or 30 or 40 or $50 a month, then give that because that amount will be doubled. Feel good about giving to the radio station that gives you so much back and the website that gives you so much back and give to WBUR right now at 1-800-909-9287 or give at WBUR.org. We all do more for WBUR when we all put our money together so it can be what you might consider a modest gift or not so modest gift. The fact is that you're contributing to the station that relies on your contributions. You could choose from any one of a number of stations, podcasts, whatever you listen to, whatever you watch, the fact that you know that we do not have commercials and never will, but still present absolutely the best news around. And probably because we don't have commercials, we are beholden to you. So we hope that you will now keep us going with your contribution that will be matched dollar for dollar, your monthly monthly contribution at 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dickinson College, awarding the Rose Walters Prize for Global Environmental Activism to combat climate change and inspire future leaders. Learn more at dickinson.edu rwp. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews all in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Scott Detrow in Kiev, Ukraine. As people here in Kiev are starting to pick up the pieces as more and more Ukrainians from the capital start returning to their homes, Russian troops have not let up in other parts of Ukraine. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarny has been following developments from here in Kiev. Hey, Alyssa. Hello. So Ukrainian officials and also Western military analysts are issuing new warnings about renewed fighting in the east. What do we know about that? Well, troops from around Kyiv are now moving into the east, and we're seeing increased Russian military attacks on residential areas in places like Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk. Earlier today, at least four people were killed waiting for humanitarian aid in Donetsk. And officials are urging people who are remaining in the east to evacuate further west. So the, this feeling of relief from here around Kiev, not the case in the east, and, and it, it mm-hmm. seems like that means a lot more displaced Ukrainians? That's right, yeah. And here in Kiev, I've talked to a lot of people who've had to leave their homes, and I want to tell you about a maternity hospital I visited here. On the second floor in a room at the end of a long hallway, I find Alina and her husband, Marco. She's in a hospital gown in a chair next to the bed. 
Marco is pacing at the foot of that bed. I want to give birth right now. Right now, she says. It's been a long road to get to this moment, this hospital room. Elena and her husband escaped from Bucha, where so much devastation happened. They hid in the basement for that first week, then a volunteer helped them leave. Everything was destroyed, Elena says. She says she closed her eyes when she walked to the car. She didn't want to see the horror. She was thinking of the baby, of trying to stay calm. She remembers feeling stressed and scared. They drove from Bucha to Irpin, but it wasn't safe there either. Russian forces had advanced and trapped them. They slept in a church. Alina says members of the military helped them walk across the rubble of a blown-up bridge, like so many others. I'm grateful to God that we were able to flee, she says. Finally, in Kyiv, they've spent the last two weeks living in the basement of her husband's office. It's been really hard, she says, her eyes welling up with tears. Her husband, Marco, steps in. Let's finish the interview, he says. She needs to relax. We've seen uh, complications, hypertension. I've seen that these complications were influenced on stress. Andrei Valensky is a trained pediatrician. Now he's the director of this maternity hospital in Kyiv. I think it's very difficult uh, times for families, for mothers and uh, for babies. Most of the women they've treated here have come from other regions. Dangerous uh, district, for example, Butcher, Penkostomer, Borodyanka. Um, a lot of terrible stories. They've endured so much, he says. We've been doing our best here, he says, to make them forget there is a war behind the windows. He pauses and starts to cry. He apologizes. He hasn't really cried yet from all of it. He switches back to English for a final thought. I think that uh, this situation uh, shows us that uh, life uh, more strong than death. Valensky takes us down to the shelter below the hospital. They've set up an entire wing down below. It's, it's our, our intensive care department for women. Around the corner is the intensive care area for babies. Uh, before war, it was a cafeteria for staff. The oxygen is now next to the coffee machine. The walls are painted with vegetables and fruit. Back up in the lobby, we find Valentina holding her three-day-old granddaughter, Katya. <laughs> Valentina's daughter, who just gave birth, is at home, recovering. The baby is back today for a checkup. She says little, innocent Katya. She represents hope amid all this news of death. She tells me her husband, Katya's grandfather, planted two apple trees in the yard in honor of her birth. She hopes to eat the fruit one day with her. She's the future. I want peace in Ukraine for her, she says. 
That's NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney. And, and Alyssa, I understand an important update to this story. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I have some good news. Alina and Marco, the couple who escaped Bucha, had a healthy, happy baby girl, and they've named the baby Diana. That's great. Life can be stronger than death, as he said in the story. <laughs> NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney. Thanks so much. Thank you. Over the next few weeks, we'll be hearing poems from four finalists for the National Youth Poet Laureate Award. The first poem comes from this year's Midwest Youth Poet Laureate Ambassador. Hi, I'm Alyssa Gaines. I'm 18 years old. I'm a Black girl from the east side of Indianapolis. The name of this poem is Blue Dashers. Blue dashers dancing atop the lake, light strokes across the heavy landscape, eagles fly and bow riders call. I was baptized in the blue waters of a red state and came to south of the Mason-Dixon and there I was stagnant and black against the holy water and the land stretching its fingers to God. This is a poem that I really love. It started as an idea. I, I took a trip on my like summer vacation last year to uh, Branson, Missouri, and it was just beautiful. We we're in the mountains and it caused me to kind of reflect on my family's Southern history my grandpa's from Russellville, Kentucky, which is a very small town in Logan County by Bowling Green, the Confederate headquarters in Kentucky. This is a poem I wrote about kind of reckoning with that history against the backdrop of a beautiful Southern landscape. Voices in the wind of my kin asking me where I've been wondering how long it would take me to reclaim the land promised to them to jump unshackled in the lake and let them watch me swim. And what if I drown? in a memory of all they were amongst chosen people too proud and too taught to bleed red and me still black against the water and black as the swing of the trees and me trying hard to be blue like a dasher or water or sweet like honey golden light black as whatever breathes at the bottom of the basin and the undercurrent it came through and wishing still to rise to dance in the wind like the stars and the stripes from the back of the boat in flight the first thing I saw when I finally opened my eyes. Blue Dashers is a villanelle, a form that is popular amongst Southern poets. It's used to talk about like beautiful landscapes. Um, there's this repetition there, and that's kind of paying homage to this tradition of the spoken word. One of my most formative experiences with poetry, I was like 12 years old in a competition at the Library of Congress. I just remember standing there on that stage. I was nervous. And I got my first perfect score I'd ever scored. Like the whole audience stood up. That performance aspect, the quality of delivering it to the audience is something that I'm always considering. All of my poems, it's like me in conversation with the reader. That's a big piece of my writing. Alyssa Gaines, 2022 Youth Poet Laureate finalist, sharing her poem, Blue Dashers. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Our next story may be disturbing to some listeners. It begins with graphic details of a drug overdose. In 2014, Linda Latterman faced a parent's worst nightmare. I felt for a pulse, and I knew right away he, he wasn't breathing. He was gone. He was blue and um her 19 year old son danny had overdosed on heroin in his room she said that there were no red flags to make her worry that danny was even using drugs danny was just a typical teen there was nothing that you would say oh look at that kid he looks like he's 
using drugs. Linda pieced together that Danny was a fairly new user, but the heroin Danny was using was laced with fentanyl, an opioid over 80 times stronger than morphine. A new study found a 50-fold increase in the amount of fentanyl pills seized by law enforcement over the last four years. And many experts blame fentanyl as a major reason why annual drug overdose deaths in the U.S. topped 100,000 for the first time last year. Linda says the trauma that she and her family suffered after losing Danny was simply unimaginable. It took me a very long time and a lot of therapy to get the vision of how I found him out of my head. Every time I thought of my son, I didn't think of the happy, smiling Danny. The dead Danny came in my head. In the aftermath of her family's loss, Linda shared her story in a book called Life After You. It warns people about the dangers of drug abuse and also the toll it takes on their loved ones when the worst possible thing happens. That story has now been adapted into a film starring Florencio Lozano as Linda. I want Danny's death to mean something. What happened to us is private. It is nobody's <gasps> business but ours. This is happening everywhere, constantly. I need to say something. Sarah Schwab is director and co-writer of the film Life After You. She says this movie, it's different from most other movies about drug abuse. A lot of films that deal with addiction, I think they follow the, the path of the actual addict. In this story specifically, we didn't want to show any drug use. What we really wanted to show was the path of a grieving family and the way that they all deal with all of the raw emotions that come after losing somebody that you love. It's a narrative film, not a documentary, but Schwab says she hopes it will help people understand just how pervasive the opioid epidemic is, and she hopes it'll generate candid conversations about drug addiction. One of the biggest goals with the film is that we start to have dialogues, honest dialogues about addiction in general, and to talk like this is a real problem. You know, it's not just young adults, it's, it's happening to people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, even up into their 70s. It's not just our story. It's every parent who lost a child or a loved one from drugs. This is all our story, and it needed to be told. Schwab worked closely with the Latterman family in developing this film. Linda Latterman says that was difficult, but she hopes it will inspire young people to make better choices. I hoped to reach one. That's all I wanted. One kid that maybe would make a better choice than my son did. Life After You has been screening in cities across the country and is now available on various streaming platforms. And if you or someone you know is struggling with substance abuse, contact the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration at 1-800-662-4357. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, tax lawyers committed to your most taxing matters. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. My name is Layla Falden, and I'm one of the hosts of Morning Edition and the Up First podcast. 
I started as an overnight newspaper reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, found myself on a plane to Baghdad a year later covering the impact of a U.S. invasion, occupation, and war in that country, then traveled across the Middle East and North Africa with short trips into Europe sometimes, and then back to the United States covering this country, its divisions, the things that unite and divide people. I get the privilege and honor of going into people's homes, of listening to people's stories. That's a gift. I think it's incredibly important to keep those in power accountable, but also to spend as much time speaking to those impacted by the policy decisions. That, for me, is what I bring to the host chair. I'm Leila Faldil. Support this NPR station today. Here's how to give. You can give right now and support journalists such as Leila Fadl by calling 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Leila did some fascinating reporting when she was in Ukraine, and we know we're going to be hearing from her again on this. This is one of those issues that will be with us for quite some time, an issue that we're covering full throttle that we hadn't counted on covering. So this is one of the places where your dollars come in most useful because you get the results exactly when you listen on the air, when you go online at WBUR.org. This is one of the main times we're asking you to pledge your support because we have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table. It's not going to last forever. We hope you'll take advantage of it right now. I'm Lisa Mullins with Bob Oaks. Bob, before you take it away, let me give the phone number 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Right. That's the pledge line and the website where, of course, you can give. And Lisa mentioned the uh, the dollar for dollar match that's on the table right now. That's the match that will double any amount that you give monthly to WBUR right now. And as Lisa says, it won't last forever. Nothing ever does. So we're asking you to take advantage of it while it is available. Thanks to generous listeners. We're putting up their money this afternoon, encouraging you to give on this, the first day of the WBUR, the very very important WBUR spring fundraiser. Whether you're hearing stories from Ukraine or from Washington, maybe the latest from the January 6th committee or the Beacon Hill discussion over the state gas tax or the brouhaha over outdoor restaurant dining in Boston, especially in the North End, you know you're getting information that's the latest, that's reported and vetted by reporters, editors, and producers who are among the best in the business, people and teams that are directly supported by your listening and your reading of their work and supported, they are supported when you give. And we're asking you to do that right now. Give to WBUR while your monthly contribution to all these people goes twice as far because it's being doubled this afternoon for a couple more hours. Don't wait. Dial now 1-800-909-9287 or give right now at WBUR.org. If you think of the previous 12 minutes before we started asking for your gift to WBUR, what you heard in that 12 minutes, what of that is not worth your support. We heard about uh, going going um, from the most recent uh, to the 12 minutes ago, you heard about what it's like to um, be the survivor in a family where someone died of opioid and opioid overdose, the toll that it takes on loved ones. This is the film Life After You. And we heard from a young poet competing to be the next Youth Poet Laureate of the United States. We heard about what it's like to be giving birth in Ukraine right now in the midst of a war. All of these stories have 
people, individuals at the heart of them, and it takes a long time to present a story with a, a, a credible subject that gives a broader picture of what's happening in the world. And this is one of the things that WBUR NPR specialize in. We know that it's worth your listening and worth your support. If you can put together $25 a month, we will get right now $50 a month because of this generous donation on the table, this generous offer from some members of the Murrah Society. If you can make it $100 a month, we get $200 a month. So call in right now while we have this offer on the table, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You know, whether it's the opioid crisis, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, this is an incredibly tough stretch for all of us. No, one been, no one's been spared. We're asking you to join other people right now who are supporting WBUR and our efforts to cover all these stories and more. Pledge while your pledge can be doubled this afternoon. Give right now at WBUR.org or at 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs, from hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH Isbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian officials are urging residents of the eastern part of the country to leave. NPR's Nathan Rott reports Russia is expected to focus its attack on that area in coming weeks. Russian troops have mostly pulled back from around Kyiv, leaving devastation and alleged war crimes in their wake. Fighting has continued, though, in the country's east and south and is expected to intensify in the coming days and weeks. Russia now says its main goal is to take control of eastern Ukrainian territories like Kharkiv, Luhansk, and Donetsk. Hundreds of thousands of people have already fled these areas since Russia's invasion, but many have stayed under near-constant missile strikes and shelling. Some residents have told NPR that the Ukrainian military has long been urging them to leave so they can more easily fight back. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Kiev. The Justice Department says it has taken action to prevent Russian intelligence officers from weaponizing an army of infected devices. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports the operation prevented the units from being launched cyber to use cyber attacks around the world. The FBI and the Justice Department worked together in March to target malicious Russian cyber activity. The intelligence community has been concerned Russia might turn to cyber attacks against the U.S. in retaliation for supporting Ukraine. In this case, agents shut down what's called a botnet. The moniker is used to describe a large number of infected digital devices used for cyber attacks. The U.S. government zeroed in on a botnet controlled by a group known as Sandworm. 
It's part of Russian military intelligence. Agents located the devices used to control the botnet, then copied and removed malicious code from them. That severed the connection to the other infected devices. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. Attorney General Merrick Garland has tested positive for the coronavirus. However, NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Garland is not experiencing symptoms. A Justice Department spokesman says the Attorney General is fully vaccinated and boosted against COVID-19. Merrick Garland plans to isolate at home for at least five days and to work virtually during that time. He will return to the office after he tests negative for the virus. Garland, who is 69 years old, attended the exclusive gridiron dinner in Washington last weekend. Several government officials and reporters who were at the event have since tested positive. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. With investors bracing for additional interest rate hikes in the months ahead, the Federal Reserve, in the minutes from its most recent meeting, says it is moving closer to rapidly shrinking its $9 trillion stockpile of bonds. Many consumer loans are tied to bond rates, so that move along with interest rate hikes is likely to boost borrowing costs for both consumers and businesses. Stocks lost ground for a second straight session amid continued worries about how quickly the Fed will move. The Dow dropped 144 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two Boston city councilors are calling on Boston public schools to offer more courses in mental health and wellness. Counselors Julia Mejia and Aaron Murphy point to pandemic-related mental health issues. They also cite recent violent incidents in or around Boston schools, including a shooting at the Tech Boston Academy last month. Chicopee Superintendent of Schools was arrested today after she allegedly threatened a candidate looking to become the city's next chief of police. Federal prosecutors say Lynn Clark anonymously sent about 100 texts revealing to uh, threatening to reveal embarrassing personal information about the man if he did not withdraw his candidacy. Clark is charged with lying to investigators about what she did. And restaurants and retailers are being warned about potentially contaminated raw oysters from Canada that have been sold in Massachusetts. The FDA says the oysters harvested off the coast of British Columbia have been linked to the norovirus outbreak. Restaurants are being advised to throw the potentially contaminated shellfish away. In the forecast, may need an umbrella for the next few days. Tonight, patchy drizzle, rain dipping a few degrees to about 40. Tomorrow should bring more showers, some strong winds, highs about 51. Cloudy on Friday, more showers inching to just about 62 degrees. In Boston, holding steady at 45 degrees now at 505. WBUR supporters include the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. New sanctions imposed on Russia by the UK and or by the US and Europe that's coming up in just a couple of minutes, really just a couple of minutes. I'm Lisa Mullins, along with Bob Oaks, and I think it is three minutes, Bob, for us to encourage everyone out there to please, if you have yet to make a pledge of support, and it's likely you haven't because we just began our fund drive today, that you do so right now because we have a special offer on the table at one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven WBUR.org. It's such the perfect time to pledge to give to WBUR for all the news that you've heard in the last couple of hours, for all the news that you've heard in the last couple of months or a couple of years, if it's been a while since you've given. The match is a dollar-for-dollar match. That means if you give $10 a month, it's worth 20 for the news. If you give 20 it's worth 40 for the news. You know how it works. 
It will double any monthly gift we get uh, to WBUR for the news right now. And on the first day of this fundraiser, we're asking you to join the community of listeners. That's uh, The individuals from the community of listeners have already given to WBUR. Give us momentum on day one so it can carry us successfully right straight through the entire fundraiser. Put your dollars to work for the news and have them doubled. 1-800-909-9287 is the pledge line. You can, you can also give online, of course, at WBUR.org. It's fast and easy. Absolutely. And what you get in return are stories not just about the new Russia sanctions, also about the fall booster strategy. The Food and Drug Administration's advisors are trying to decide whether or not we'll need another booster in the fall this year ahead of the winter surge in the coronavirus. And if so, what kind of booster? That story is coming up. Uh, in just about one minute. So for all the stories that you hear on WBUR, think of what they're worth to you. Think of why you listen when there are so many other places you could be right now. You've chosen to listen to us, a non-profit, non-commercial radio station for a reason. We know it's a good reason. So please put whatever you can behind it. If it's $10 a month, $20 a month, $30 a month, it will be doubled right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We come to you with, uh, with these requests for your gift to WBUR as little as possible. We try to be as efficient as possible in our requests, but the fact is that we need you to keep us strong. And when we're strong, the news that you get is uh, more intensive, more ambitious. So keep us as strong as possible. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And thank you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs starting May 6th, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app, and immersive Frida Kahlo, a multimedia experience of her life, love, and art, now at the Lighthouse Art Space at Saunders Castle. Tickets at immersive-frida.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Kiev, Ukraine. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. The federal government today launched efforts to plan yet another possible COVID-19 vaccine campaign for the fall in order to protect people against yet another possible surge next winter. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now with more details. Hi, Rob. Hey there. So explain what exactly happened today. The Food and Drug Administration convened a special meeting of independent scientific advisors to try to figure out what should happen next with the vaccines, which is a really tough but obviously extremely important question. Mm. Here's how FDA's Dr. Peter Mark set the stage for the day-long virtual meeting today. Although we've seen a major decline in the number of COVID-19 cases in the country, the virus continues to circulate and it will continue to do so and will potentially cause waves of an increased number of cases. This is particularly of concern as we head into the coming fall and winter season. So the advisors heard detailed presentations from the CDC and FDA, as well as outside scientists about the trajectory of the pandemic, the evolution of the virus, and the effectiveness of the vaccines. Okay, so what did they hear in these presentations? 
Yes, so researchers at the University of Washington told the committee that another surge is probably likely next winter because, you know, immunity people have from the vaccines and having already caught the virus will probably have faded even more by then. And the cold weather will be driving people back indoors where the virus spreads more easily. At the same time, Trevor Bedford at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center told the advisors that the virus has been evolving incredibly fast, with new variants emerging in just months instead of years it takes for the flu to evolve. And another dangerous new variant, like Omicron, could easily emerge, perhaps within a year or so, but maybe for not more than a decade. But he says we have to be ready. We really don't know whether these wildly divergent viruses will be a common feature or a rare feature of endemic SARS-CoV-2 evolution. But in general, from everything we've seen, we should expect a lot of evolution going forward, and we should have methods to keep up with this evolution in terms of our vaccination platforms. The committee also heard about the possible option for the next round of shots. The most likely is a new version of the vaccine, you know, like one that switches things up to specifically target the Omicron variant, or maybe one that combines Omicron with another variant like Beta or Delta or the original strain to hopefully provide more protection against any new variants that might evolve. Wow. Okay, so did the committee recommend anything today? You know, the committee didn't make any specific recommendations today. Instead, they kind of struggled with how best to make this crucial decisions with so many unknowns. You know, how will they judge whether another round of shots is definitely necessary? And if so, how will they judge new versions of the vaccine to to decide which one to pick, especially when no one knows which variant might be dominant by then? Here's Dr. Haley Altman-Gans from Stanford University. What we're all grappling with is that this is an unsettled environment in which we're trying to move forward. And, you know, in the end, the experts will have to make the best educated guess uh, possible about which strain or strains make the most sense, like, you know, like we do with the flu vaccine every year, and Mm -hmm. hope it's right. But that's tough because this virus has been so unpredictable and evolving so fast. They also discussed whether the fall shots would be be the beginning of an annual vaccine campaign like the flu. And the answer appears to be maybe, but maybe not. We'll just have to wait and see how long our immunity holds up and what the virus does next. Oh, my God. Yeah, Rob, so many open questions. So what happens next at this point? Real quick. Yeah, the FDA will bring these advisors back probably in May or June to make some specific recommendations so the vaccine companies have enough time to make enough vaccine for another campaign by the fall. That is NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Thank you, Rob. Sure thing. The international community is intensifying sanctions on Russia. This because of widespread outrage over alleged war crimes by Russian forces. The U.S., along with the G7 and European Union, are targeting large financial institutions and several more of Russia's elite, including family members of top officials like President Vladimir Putin. NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam has been following the details, and she joins us now. Hey, Jackie. Hi, Scott. Okay, another round of sanctions. What are the details about this one? Well, the U.S. and its allies hit two of Russia's largest financial institutions with blocking sanctions. So that will freeze any assets that touch the U.S. financial system and also prohibit Americans from conducting business with them. One of them, the Sberbank, holds about one-third of Russia's banking assets, so well over $500 billion. Also, there are now full blocking sanctions on several more Russian individuals, and that includes the wife and daughter of Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who himself was already sanctioned, and two of President Putin's adult daughters from his first marriage. And Putin was also facing sanctions. 
Why go after his daughters? Is is there maybe thinking here that they could have some sort of influence on his decision making? That could be part of it. Um, a senior administration official said today that the U.S. believes that Putin hides his wealth, his assets, you know, such as yachts and mansions, etc., with family members that could be in the U.S. financial system or other parts of the world. So this would be a way to chip away at his wealth. And it also just shows that there are lots of different types of sanctions that the U.S. and others can apply to Russians. And that's why they are doling them out incrementally for now. So there's an important caveat here, just like previous rounds of sanctions that, that the U.S. has taken and other countries as well. None of these sanctions would apply to energy exports from Russia. That is such a big part of Russia's economy. Is there any movement at this point to sanction oil and gas, to stop imports from Russia to Europe? Well, the EU, the European Union, is looking at whether it should stop buying coal from Russia. And that could be decided by the end of this week. Um, coal is something that can easily be bought elsewhere. But it's a different picture for oil and gas. Uh, Europe relies heavily on Russian oil, and particularly gas, to heat its homes and run its businesses. And if it suddenly cuts off those imports, it could have a pretty dramatic effect on their own economies. But at the same time, though, you see see these pictures coming out of Bucha and some of the other Kiev suburbs and have to suspect that, you know, there's some real soul searching that's probably going on in Europe right now. If that did happen, if there were sanctions on oil and gas, would that have any impact on Putin or on the overall war? Well, it's a lot of money and it helps prop up the government. You know, the EU said that Europe is sending about $1 billion a day to Russia for oil and gas. And that could be going towards Russia's war effort. So removing that would probably deal a blow to financing the war as well as Russia's economy. And analysts believe that the economy has already shrunk, has been hit by these sanctions so far. But there's a lot of debate. If you sanction oil and gas, it would really hit hard. But, you know, would that make Putin back down, you know, rethink the invasion of Ukraine? Or could it instead make him more aggressive? Because at that point, he would have nothing to lose. That's NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks so much, Scott. Amazon says it's expanding into space. On Tuesday, the company said it wants to launch thousands of satellites. But as NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, some experts are worried about a traffic jam on the final frontier. We should also note Amazon is a financial supporter of NPR. Okay, so here's how Amazon's internet service is supposed to work. A person on the ground has an antenna, and they connect using satellites passing overhead. The company sees the potential to reach millions of customers who can't get an easy hookup to the web, but to do that, it needs to launch over 3,000 satellites. And while space is big, the part of the sky these satellites can orbit in is actually relatively small. They have to avoid smashing into one another. I question the ability of individual companies to manage. Hugh Lewis is a professor of astronautics at the University of Southampton. We launch all of these satellites with a, an expectation, if you like, that maybe it'll be okay. So let's just keep doing it. And, and the problem is, is, is that the, the environment doesn't work in that way. As companies add satellites, the number of near misses rises exponentially. Elon Musk's company, SpaceX, already runs a fleet of internet satellites called Starlink. Lewis estimates that system alone had to perform more than 7,000 collision avoidance maneuvers in the past year. 
Mora Baja is an aerospace engineer at the University of Texas at Austin. He says that if two satellites do collide, they can send debris splattering across the paths of others. It's even possible there could be a chain of collisions, a pileup on the orbital highway. Yeah, there's a real possibility of big collisions happening and whole orbital regions becoming unusable. That's no good. SpaceX satellites have an automated collision avoidance system that moves them out of the way of others, but it's unclear how that system works or how it will interact with the planned Amazon satellites. In a statement to NPR, Amazon said it was already planning safety precautions. The company's satellites will actively maneuver to avoid collisions, and Amazon will share data on where its satellites are with others. But Joss says even that may not be enough because Amazon and SpaceX aren't alone. China is planning to launch over 10,000 of its own satellites. If it's hard enough for two American companies to deconflict collisions, crossing a strong cultural and geopolitical barrier is even more of a challenge, I think. He says there needs to be some basic rules of the road to keep everyone safe. We need a, a, a globally managed space traffic coordination system. Unfortunately, for now, that seems unlikely. It's far easier for individual companies and countries to launch satellites from Earth than it is to get the world working together in space. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A stock slid for a second day. The Dow lost 0.42%, 145 points, to finish the day at 34,497. S&P gave up about a full percent to close at 44.81. The Nasdaq slid two and a quarter percent to finish the day at 13,889. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. In the forecast, kind of crummy out there today. Should have clouds lasting through the night tonight. Lows about 40. Tomorrow featuring a few April showers. Light breezes could make it to about 51 tomorrow. But then for Friday, still on the damp side, milder. Topping 60 degrees. Some sunshine could move in for the weekend. 46 degrees now in Boston at 521. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. By calling this number, 1-800-909-9287, or going online at WBUR.org. One of the things that uh, we know is true is that when you listen to WBUR, 
almost doesn't matter if you listen for a half hour or five minutes. You're going to hear something that is really interesting and that you can share at the dinner table, at the water cooler, wherever you do the talking, including the story that we heard just a few minutes ago on how to avoid collisions when Amazon plans to launch thousands of new satellites into orbit in the next five years. And SpaceX is also launching its own, and China is also putting its own satellites up there. Um, This is one of the really interesting stories that has so many implications that you heard about even in just a short period of time. Think of the stories that mean something to you, even stories like that that are brief but packed with information, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Place a dollar value on them and make a pledge right now at that number or at WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Bob Oaks. There's a special reason to give right now. That's right, Lisa. We have a very important match on the table on this day one of the very short WBUR spring fundraiser, an important day because it kind of sets the tone for how the fundraiser is going to go uh, in the few days ahead, which is why other listeners to WBUR, generous folks, have put up their money encouraging you to give this afternoon to WBUR because they know how important it is to get a whole bunch of people, and that means you, a whole bunch of people to give to WBUR on day one. It'll give us momentum in the days ahead. They're doubling every pledge. They're matching dollar for dollar your monthly gift to WBUR right now. So you give $10 a month, it's worth 20 for all the news you're listening to. You give $25 a month for all the news, it's worth 50 to WBUR. Give right now while this match is on the table because it's not around for that much longer this afternoon. The number to call is one 800 909-9287 or give right now and get your dollars monthly dollars matched on WBUR at WBUR.org. One of the stories coming up uh, has to do with the Biden administration's decision that was just announced to extend the freeze of student loan payments and interest. These are stories that make a difference in people's lives and we know that WBUR does the same thing. So again, put a dollar value on that. Give monthly, as Bob said, and you can get your contribution to WBR matched dollar for dollar right now, thanks to some members of the Murrah Society to whom we are extremely grateful. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287. And if you prefer to give online, go to WBUR.org. If you've never given money to WBUR, consider making your first contribution to us right now, this afternoon, because that first contribution is worth just that much more for the news that you've come to appreciate, news that you value enough to make that first gift. If you've given in the past to WBUR, renew your commitment because your gift is doubled as well. If you're already a monthly giver, give us five or ten dollars more a month right now and that will be doubled your monthly gift to wbur dollar for dollar matched right now while it's available take advantage of it dial the number 1-800-909-9287 and thanks support for npr comes from this station and from fidelity with fidelity income planning Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday. 
the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. President Biden announced today that he is extending the two-year freeze on federal student loan payments, interest, and collections until August 31st. The Education Department also said it would offer a, quote, fresh start for the roughly 7 million borrowers who are in default right now. To talk more about that, we are joined now by the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being with us again. All right, I just want to start with this fresh start for borrowers who are currently in default. What does that mean exactly, fresh start? Yeah, we know um, so many of our borrowers uh, have fallen on hard times even before the pandemic. They've maybe had delinquency in payments or they've had to default on their loans. And what we want to do is make sure they have a fresh start. We Mm -hmm. want to make sure that their loans are uh, put in good standing again. Um, Level the playing field. You know, let's, let's start fresh. How can we support you? How can we help you uh, be successful with your loan repayment? So they're starting with a fresh start. Okay, but they're not getting any of their loans forgiven, right? Just to be clear? Uh, No, the Fresh Start program is really just putting them back in good standing um, despite whatever challenges they had prior. Okay, and are you confident that you can get all of that done and processed in just four and a half months? You know, restarting 41 million loans is something that's never been done. But you know what? Two years ago, we would never have thought we can reopen schools after shutting them down after a pandemic. We can do it. We put in different uh, strategies in place. We really want to make it more student-centered, more borrower-centered here. So we work really hard at FSA. We have Richard Cordray over there, James Qual in the higher ed space, just trying to change the systems to make it more Mm user-friendly and be more supportive of our borrowers who are really, you know, they had a lot of challenges during the pandemic. And we think this pause will help 41 million Americans breathe a little bit easier. Okay. Well, that said, you know, with this new extension to August 31st, we're now talking about two and a half years total where no interest has accrued on student loans, federal student loans, which you would think is exactly when borrowers would want to be paying off their loans. But I understand that your data shows only about half a million borrowers have been doing that. Do you worry that the mixed messages this administration is sending about possible debt cancellation further down the road is maybe causing people not to pay down their loans. No, I really think it's, uh, you know, Americans had a tough time during the pandemic. You know, what we're finding is uh, people are starting to, you know, pay their mortgages or childcare expenses are coming back because many folks are returning back to work. So what we're hearing and what we're seeing is that, uh, you know, this pandemic, we're, things are getting better, right? The economy is getting better, 7.9 million jobs over the last year, greatest uh, year of job growth on record. But but Americans are still struggling right now. And um, we do believe that this pause will help them. And mm-hmm. with regard to, uh, you know, the, the messaging around um, broader loan forgiveness, while we continue those conversations, I, I do think this pause is something that Americans needed during this pandemic. Let me ask you about loan forgiveness and on this issue of struggling Americans. I mean, some Democratic lawmakers have been lukewarm about this particular extension because they were looking for greater loan forgiveness. Is there a chance that loan forgiveness will be a possibility after August 31st? Right. I, I'm not really connecting these two things, uh, you know, in terms of what we're trying to do for, for our borrowers. Um, while the conversations around loan forgiveness continue to happen, we did feel that this uh, this pause um, was needed also. And um, we, we definitely want to make sure we're not just also limiting it to the, the, the overall broad loan forgiveness. There's so much that has been done since President Biden took office to 
make it uh, a little right. bit easier for borrowers. You know, so we're going to continue to put our students first, provide loan forgiveness where we can, and keep our Americans uh, supported throughout this process. All right. That is the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. Thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work, offering a top-ranked MSW part-time program in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. Visit bu.edu ssw. The Boston Pops. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of the musical legacy of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. bostonpops.org and Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmerstoyou.com slash WBUR. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is toughening sanctions on Russia in response to alleged war crimes in Ukraine. That includes sanctions on two of President Putin's adult daughters and... The United States will impose full blocking sanctions on Sparebank, by far the largest financial institution in Russia, and Alpha Bank, its largest private bank. We're locking down any accounts, any funds that those banks hold in the United States. Biden says the U.S. will continue to stand for Ukraine and the fight for freedom. In Minnesota, prosecutors declined to file charges against a Minneapolis police SWAT team officer who fatally shot Amir Locke while executing an early morning no-knock search warrant in February. The 22-year-old, who was black, wasn't named in the warrant and was staying on a couch in an apartment when authorities entered as part of an investigation into a homicide. Police say he was shot after he pointed a gun in the direction of officers. His family says body camera footage shows he was startled awake, but it also shows him holding a gun before he was shot. The federal government says climate change could damage the economy and the budget. NPR's Laura Benchoff has more. $2 trillion. That's how much tax revenue the federal government could lose annually due to climate change by the end of the century if we continue on our current path. That's according to a new analysis from the Office of Management and Budget. And that doesn't include the tens of billions of dollars more the government would have to pay for aid and insurance, resulting from more intense storms and wildfires. This is all tied to Biden's budget pitch. After failing to get climate change legislation passed, the administration is asking for nearly $45 billion in climate spending in next year's budget. Laura Benshoff, NPR News, Philadelphia. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 144, Nasdaq down 315. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Non-English speakers who are hospitalized with COVID-19 are at greater risk than English speaker patients to be more seriously affected by the disease. Researchers at Mass General Brigham studied almost 10,000 patients. They found that COVID patients who do not speak English have a 35% greater chance of dying or requiring intensive care. Two Middlesex County proprietors are charged with failing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in excise tax to the state. Prosecutors say over a three-year period, the men routinely bought untaxed tobacco products out of state but never paid the required excise tax to Massachusetts. One of them owns, uh, owned a market in Waltham. The other owned a store in Belmont. In total, they're accused of failing to pay just over $800,000 in taxes. The Boston Calling Music Festival has found a replacement for Foo Fighters, the rock band that was set to headline on May 27th. WBR's Andrea Shea has more. 
Nine Inch Nails will fill Foo Fighters slot for the festival's return on Memorial Day weekend. This news comes one week after Foo Fighters canceled their international tour to grieve after the unexpected death of longtime drummer Taylor Hawkins. Foo Fighters were originally lined up to perform at Boston Calling in 2020, but the pandemic forced organizers to postpone the three-day event for two years. Nine Inch Nails, led by Trent Reznor, headlines on Friday, May 27th, followed by The Strokes on Saturday and Metallica on Sunday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is offering the chance to sit down and have coffee with her and let her know what you think about open spaces in your neighborhood. The mayor's coffee hours will be held in May and June. She says she hopes to take the city hall out of city hall and into the neighborhoods to meet with people. The schedule and locations are available on the Boston Parks and Recreation Department website as well as on social media. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. Celtics play the Bulls in Chicago tonight, 8 o'clock start time. In the forecast, showers lasting through the evening, overnight lows about 41. Tomorrow could reach about 51, light rain during the day. Friday, clouds endure, as do the showers, could make it into the 60s on Friday. 46 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC, and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. We are keeping a close watch on developments in Ukraine and will bring you all the latest news as it becomes available, even as we ask for your support to help us bring you this news and everything you count on from WBUR. Here's how to help. You can call this number, and we hope you will right now, 1-800-909-9287, or go online at WBUR.org. Great reason to call anytime, but especially a great reason to call right now. I'm Lisa Mullins. Bob Oaks is going to tell you what it is. That's right, Lisa. We have a very generous match on the table this afternoon, thanks to very generous WBUR listeners who are going to match your monthly gift to WBUR if you make it right now, dollar for dollar. So you make a $20 monthly contribution for the news that you value, it's worth $40 for the news. You make a $50 contribution, a monthly contribution for the news, it's worth $100 a month. But if $5 a month is what you can afford right now. Make it, do it proudly, and it too will be doubled to $10 a month for the news. But the match is only available for a little while longer this afternoon. So we're asking you on day one of the very short spring fundraiser here at WBUR to take advantage of it while it's available. Dial the number, make the gift at one 800 or give at WBUR.org. 
And one of the stories that we have coming up in just a couple of minutes, we're talking to somebody in Kiev who has stayed there through the Russian attacks on Ukraine. He tells us what it's been like. And also, very interestingly, about the communities that have been forming among people who have decided to stay despite the attacks from Russia. So that's just one of the many stories coming up that we think you'll agree is worth your support. So decide what it's worth to you to listen to stories like all of those you've been hearing today, whatever time you listen, day or night. Put a dollar value on it, especially do it right now because we have this, as Bob said, dollar for dollar match on the table. So if you can give a monthly gift of, say, $15 a month, we get $30 a month. If you can give uh, $150 a month, it becomes $300 a month to us, thanks to these generous members of the Morrow Society. The number again, one 800 909-9287-WBUR.org. In terms of the war, which of course has dominated the news now for 40 plus days here uh, on WBUR and uh, on other media outlets uh, around the world, you've heard and read about what's happening in Russia. Independent reporting in Russia about the war pretty much shut down by President Putin and the Russian government, which got WBUR CEO Margaret Lowe thinking about editorial independence at WBUR and your support for WBUR. We often talk about independent journalism being a cornerstone of democracy, and Putin's move is a stark but very real example of why the existence of a free press is so vital. People in Russia are not getting the truth. It's calamitous. And while this is not Russia, the threat to independent journalism is very real, even in this country, not just because of the upending of facts, but because of serious economic and technical disruption. You know, media sponsorship, once nearly half of our revenue has been in steady decline. And the technology needs of a modern media company have increased exponentially. So we have to count on the people who count on us. In these really hard times for everyone, including you, including us, support WBUR because you know what we do for you. You know what the news does for you from WBUR. Give right now and have your gift doubled since we have this match on the table, 1-800-909-9287. Or give, make the monthly gift and have it doubled at WBUR.org. And Margaret just uh, made the uh, uh, remark about state-run media and about editorial independence. This is not state-run media. This is listener-run media. So you are the ones who call the shots. We know that you have supported us in the past, and that is why we can present the news and information that you get 24-7. That's why we've been able to grow, certainly on the web as well as on the air, with podcasts, with all you get from WBUR. It comes from you with your money. So we hope right now, with this added incentive on the table of the dollar-for-dollar match, that you will call and support this editorially independent radio station, the one that's beholden to you, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. If you want to support WBUR, now is a terrific time to do it. The largest share of funding to WBUR comes from you, our listeners. We depend on it. We're asking you to give to WBUR right now. Give 10 or $15 a month. Let that amount be doubled to WBUR because the match is on the table for just a little while longer. The number to call as we go back to the news is 
1-800-909-9287 or give it WBUR.org. We're so grateful. If you can make a pledge, $10 a month, it becomes 20 for us, and you do the math on the rest. It's all to our benefit and to your benefit. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Kiev, Ukraine. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Diplomats are expressing outrage over reports of Russian atrocities in Ukraine. In Brussels and in Washington, officials announced more sanctions to step up the pressure on President Vladimir Putin. And NATO foreign ministers are trying to speed up military aid to Ukraine. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Brussels. Secretary Blinken has been spending a lot of time at NATO headquarters these days, and he says the U.S. and its allies are following through on commitments they made in the face of Russian aggression. One was to support our Ukrainian partners. We're doing that. Two was to put extraordinary pressure on Russia. We're doing that. Three was to uh, make sure that we were shoring up the defenses of our own alliance, NATO, and we're doing that. The secretary announced another $100 million of military aid for Ukraine, bringing the U.S. total to $1.7 billion since Russia invaded in February. NATO's secretary general says Ukraine urgently needs more weapons, and that's one of the key issues being discussed by foreign ministers here. The U.S. and Europe are also taking steps to tighten the financial screws on Russian President Vladimir Putin's government. The U.S. is imposing sanctions on major banks, and the EU is banning the import of coal. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, says this round of sanctions won't be the last. We've now banned coal, but now we have to look into oil, and we have to look into the revenues that Russia gets from the fossil fuels. Weaning Europe off Russian energy will take time, but von der Leyen told the European Parliament that Europe needs to head in that direction. She's planning a trip to Ukraine this week and described the reported atrocities in Bucha as a turning point. They shot everyone they saw, one witness said about Putin's soldiers. This, honorable members, is what is happening when Putin's soldiers occupy Ukraine territory. They call it liberation. No, we call it war crimes, and we really have to give it this name. U.S. and European officials are worried that Russia may have pulled back from areas around Kyiv only to intensify the fight for territory in eastern Ukraine. NATO's secretary general says the foreign ministers meeting here need to be prepared for a long haul. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Brussels. At the back basement door of a small cafe in central Kyiv, there's a scene you wouldn't have found here six weeks ago. Dozens of the city's elderly residents lined up, waiting for food. Behind a wooden table, a handful of volunteers bags groceries to distribute. And in the distance, there's the persistent dull thud of unexploded ordinances being set off by Ukraine's military. 
Vera Polanska shows off what's inside her bag. She holds up a beet, some milk, sugar, bread. It's really hard here right now, she says. Then, she says she wishes for peace around the world. One of the people helping up front is 53-year-old Mihailos Matana. He goes by Misha. I'm Scott. I'm Misha. He was a designer before the war. Now he does this full-time. These people need help, and we also need to do something. I mean, we can't just sit and, you know, uh, scroll the news constantly. A lot of people say that, you know, like, I, I was just sitting there looking at news over and over and over. It was better to be active. Yes, absolutely, yeah, that's true, 100%. Misha used to be a regular customer at this cafe. He lives right down the street. When the cafe began handing out food, he began volunteering. And gradually, a whole devoted community grew here. There are 15 people uh, living here at the moment, and all of them are helping living somehow. Here. Yes, there are people who actually live in the cafe downstairs. As a shelter? Yes, as a shelter, yeah. Misha takes us inside the cafe and down a set of stairs. This is one of the rooms where people live. It's a basement storage room, no windows. A big mattress. An inflatable mattress is in the and, corner, uh, covered with a red plaid blanket. Uh, and I think two people live here with the dog. Down more steps. And there's more. He opens a door into another basement, filled with more mattresses. One, two, three, four, five people sleep here. And uh, six, actually. Somebody sleeps here as well. Oh, wow, in like a little niche. loft corner niche, yeah. yeah. Misha doesn't sleep here. He and his wife live in a solid building that feels safe. So they've made the choice to stay home during air raid sirens. For many people, it's actually safer here. Someone lives near the airport. Uh, someone lives like in the 22nd floor with the floor to ceiling glass window. So it's obviously safer to be here for them. All Things Considered first met Misha on the day the war started, February 24th. Hi. Uh, my name is Misha. Please send us a voice uh, memo. It's all just terrible. It's terrifying. It's a disaster. It's like being inside a Hollywood movie about some sort of the end of the world. Oof. I mean, my life, personally, professionally, will never be the same. The world will never be the same. I'm 50-something, and I was born in the Soviet Union. I went to the Soviet Army. I've seen many things. I've seen actually too many things. And I'm, I seriously, I really want to live a boring life. We've been keeping in touch with him ever since. So here in Kyiv, we came to see him, to sit down and talk about how he's feeling now. What's it feel like to hear that five plus weeks later? I hate my voice, that's one thing. <laughs> I don't know how you do it on the radio. Otherwise, I don't know. I mean, I agree with everything that I said. It's It definitely feels like the end of the world as we know it. It's not going to be the same, I think. The answer might feel obvious to you, but what was it that drew you about this cafe? You've become so invested in this community, so invested in, in helping feed people. Uh, I was a regular here uh, before the war, and uh, I just you know came to help and keep myself busy but of course it's the people uh, here beca became friends and uh, this is strange because we're all different people uh, from different backgrounds 
and the situation that that these people is all together here right now that would probably never happen in a peaceful time in a time of peace because we are all different people that uh that boring life that you wished for when you talked to us the very first day does that feel possible in any way shape or form I at this so. point i hope so i hope so because you know it was where should i start okay the uh, Soviet invasion to Afghanistan, the death of Brezhnev, then uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, then, uh, I mean, ah, Chernobyl, I forgot Chernobyl, and so on and on and on, and it keeps changing and changing, and then in Ukraine, Orange Revolution, and then we had in Maidan, and then the war started in 2014, Crimea. It keeps happening and happening and happening and happening. Misha, I hope that boring life comes sometime soon. Thank you so much for talking Me to too. us. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It has been 11 days since a state of emergency was enacted in El Salvador. Officials say more than 6,000 people have been arrested under new powers given to police and the military to round up suspected gang members. This crackdown followed a spate of killings last month. El Salvador's president, a 40-year-old leader with an unconventional style, is blasting international critics who say he is violating human rights. We're joined now by NPR international correspondent Carrie Kahn in Mexico City. She covers Latin America. Hi, Carrie. Hi. So can you just tell us, how did all of this start? 87 people were killed over a three-day period ending on March 27th, and that, that just really rocked the nation. The homicide rate had been dropping in El Salvador, and the president, Nayib Bukele, had taken credit for that. But critics attribute it more to Bukele actually brokering a secret pact with the gangs to reduce the homicide rate. Bukele has long denied that. But many say that pact obviously fell apart and sparked the killings, which were brutal. Some people were just shot just for being out on the streets. Wow. And do the president's moves now, I mean, do they have support from the people in El Salvador? Yes, pretty widely. The gangs in El Salvador, like the MS-13, have controlled for decades many parts of the country, especially in poor urban neighborhoods. And they, they extort, they kill and corrupt, and there is great resentment for them. And President Bukele is very popular in El Salvador, particularly for his handling of the gangs. He's young, he's quite informal, he's a voracious tweeter. He portrays himself as the protector of the country, someone who is restoring security there. His Twitter feed now is just full of images of shirtless, tattooed gang members being arrested and thrown in prison. But that said, there are many concerns that he has consolidated a lot of power and this new state of emergency is giving him even more. Yeah, tell us more about those concerns. Like, who's raising them? Well, the concerns are that that people just suspected of being in a gang can be, they are being arrested, taken from their homes without search warrants and held for up to 15 days without charges. Hmm. There are so many people being round up that police stations are just overflowing. There are accusations of inhumane treatment. The Congress, which Bukele's party controls, has given the government new powers, including the ability to intercept communications. And Bukele has already been accused of spying on journalists and activists in the past. Um, Here's Ruth Lopez. She's uh, with the human rights group Cristosal in El Salvador. 
pues no eran necesarias cuando el gobierno tiene suficientes herramientas para poder actuar sin el uh, She says Bukele, his government already has enough tools to crack down on the gangs. These extraordinary ones weren't necessary. And how is Bukele reacting to criticism of the way he's handling this crisis now? He's long been dismissive of human rights groups, especially international groups, accusing him of authoritarian moves. Here, here's just a little taste of that. Um, this week, he sarcastically told international monitors, if they're so worried about his treatment of gang members, then come and get them. Que vengan a llevarse a sus pandilleros, si tanto los quieren. Se los entregamos todos al dos por uno. He says, if you love them so much, they're yours. We'll give them to you uh, two for one. The, t the timing of all this is really inconvenient for him, too. He had planned to launch a billion-dollar Bitcoin bomb last month. Bukele is a star in the international Bitcoin community. He made Bitcoin legal tender in El Salvador, saying it will solve much of the country's economic problems. He's also had to pull out of this week's big Bitcoin conference in Miami. He was a keynote speaker there tomorrow. So he has a lot riding on how he handles of this last, this latest chapter in his war with El Salvador's gangs. That is NPR's Carrie Khan. Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include William James College, where an executive coaching certificate can boost your career and prepare you to coach tomorrow's leaders. Apply now for fall. WilliamJames.edu. WBUR supporters also include you. At least we hope that's the case. So many people listening have supported WBUR. If you haven't done it lately or if you haven't done it at all, we're asking you to do it right now before we go to the news at the top of the hour. Here's the number, one 800 909 9287, 1-800-909-9287, or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Bob Oaks, and there's something happening right now on this first day of our fund drive that we hope will give you an added incentive to become one of our supporters with a gift. But time is sure running out if you're going to take advantage of this something that's happening right now in our fund drive, because that something is a dollar-for-dollar dollar match for any monthly contribution we get to WBUR this afternoon. However, it's five minutes to six. Uh, the match is only on the table for about another hour or so. So we're suggesting, since you're consuming WBUR right now, give a little back to WBUR right now. Dial the number, make the gift, have your monthly gift to WBUR go twice as far because it will be doubled. The pledge line is 1-800-909-9287 or give at wbur.org. You know, in terms of the story that's dominated uh, us for weeks now uh, here at WBUR and at NPR and at the BBC and at many news organizations, of course, Ukraine, your gift to WBUR is an investment in the comprehensive and up-to-the-minute immediate reporting from Ukraine that's bringing important truths to you every day. So give to WBUR right now for that. Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering talks about that, saying our job is to look around the corner at how an international story like what's happening in Ukraine is going to affect our lives here at home in Boston. One really obvious example in this case is the price of oil and what it did to gas prices here, what it will do to energy prices going forward. But there's more. Ukraine is often called the breadbasket of Europe. They produce a lot of core food supply. How is that going to come home here in greater Boston? What do we need to plan for in our lives, given 
what's happening there. We had a conversation with a dairy farmer. There are about 120 dairy farms in Massachusetts. Dairy farmers are getting hit hard by the conflict in Ukraine on everything from the price of energy to transport their goods and services to fertilizer, which they need to grow food to feed the cows to produce the milk that we then drink. So part of our work also is to look around the corner for our listeners, let you know what's coming next so that you can prepare and so that you're not once again caught off guard. And what we're doing now is preparing ourselves for whatever the next story is. And you play a key role in that, as Tiziana was saying. Here's the number to call to have your pledge, to have your gift matched dollar for dollar, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Right now, if you can do $15 a month, it will turn thanks to members of the Morrow Society, into $30 a month. If you can do $100 a month, it becomes $200 a month for us. So we're asking for for your support for stories, including the one you just heard about the El Salvador president who was using questionable tactics to crack down on gang violence there. And the story we heard with that man, Misha, who has chosen to live in Kiev to stay there and not leave and how much he just longs for normalcy in the country that's been rocked by war and by more than war, in fact, Chernobyl, and so many other things that he just wants normalcy. So these are the kind of stories that help you understand what's happening in the world around us. Help support it. Help us cover these stories in the best way we know how. one 800 909 9287 and have your gift matched right now. And ask yourself if hearing reports from El Salvador uh, and Ukraine from people you trust from NPR isn't incredibly important to you right now during this turmoil in this moment in world history. Be part of giving to WBUR right now. The best part of giving to WBUR right now is not only are you paying for the news from people you trust, but your money is doubled. The dollar for dollar match is available right now. Take advantage of it when you make that gift to WBUR. All you need to do is take two minutes of time, dial the pledge line. It's 1-800-909-9287. Or take two minutes and give at WBUR.org. And thanks very much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. From Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Subaru, in partnership with its retailers and the National Forest Foundation, Subaru helped replant more than one million trees in areas devastated by wildfires. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Franny Carr-Toth, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says responsible nations need to come together to hold Russia accountable for the atrocities in Bucha, the Ukrainian city outside Kiev, where civilians were reportedly brutally killed. NPR's Asma Khalid reports on new sanctions Biden detailed today. The president again described the situation in Bucha as a war crime. Civilians executed in cold blood. Bodies dumped into mass graves, a sense of brutality and inhumanity left for all the world to see unapologetically. Biden's comments came during remarks at the North America's Building Trades Union conference. Together with our allies and our partners, we're going to keep raising the economic cost and ratchet up the pain for Putin and further increase Russia's economic isolation. The Biden administration is imposing new sanctions that include targeting Russia's largest bank, Russian President Vladimir Putin's two adult daughters, and family members of Russia's foreign minister. Asma Khalid, NPR News. A federal judge has acquitted a New Mexico man facing misdemeanor charges in connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more. U.S. District Court Judge Trevor McFadden acquitted Matthew Martin on all four misdemeanor counts against him, including entering and remaining in a restricted building and disorderly conduct. At his bench trial, Martin testified that police officers waved him into the Capitol on January 6th, an assertion that Judge McFadden, who was appointed by former President Trump, said he found credible. Martin was not charged with any violence, and McFadden said Martin's conduct on January 6th was as, quote, minimal and non-serious, end quote, as anyone who entered the Capitol that day. Martin is the third Capitol riot defendant to go to trial. The previous two were found guilty. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Vaccine experts are meeting to discuss the future strategy for COVID-19 booster campaigns, including how often vaccines might be needed to update against new strains of coronavirus and who exactly should get those shots. Policymakers at the Federal Reserve signal they may move more aggressively in coming months to raise interest rates. NPR Scott Horsley reports on the central bank's efforts to curb inflation. With consumer prices climbing at the fastest pace in four decades, many members of the Fed's rate-setting committee wanted to boost interest rates by half a percentage point last month. But the committee held back and settled for a quarter-point increase out of concern that Russia's invasion of Ukraine had already added more uncertainty to the economic outlook. Minutes from the Fed's March meeting show members are prepared to approve larger rate hikes in the coming months if inflation stays high, as expected. By raising borrowing costs, the Fed hopes to cool demand, which has been outstripping supply, driving inflation far above the Fed's long-term target of 2%. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Fed minutes worried Wall Street. The Dow down 144 points today. The Nasdaq fell 315 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Athletic Association says citizens of Russia or Belarus who reside in either of those countries will no longer be allowed to run in this year's Boston Marathon. The BAA says it's a show of support for the people of Ukraine, which was invaded by Russia in February. Russia has used Belarus as a staging ground for the invasion. Russian and Belarusian citizens who reside in other countries will be able to compete, but they will not be able to run under the flag of either country. School officials in Brookline have notified police after a teacher and a student found some hate-based graffiti at the school at the high school. The superintendent's office says the graffiti was discovered on the whiteboard of a classroom this morning. In a letter to parents, school officials say, quote, the sickening display of hate will not be tolerated. Boston is looking to make its entire school bus fleet all electric by the year 2030. 
Mayor Michelle Wu says 20 electric school buses will take to the roads this fall as part of a pilot program. The city is also expanding access to electric vehicle maintenance training at vocational schools. Celtics play the Bulls in Chicago tonight, 8 o'clock start time. The Bruins are off. Sox are resting up for tomorrow's season opener. They'll be on the road in the Bronx to play the Yankees. Lots of showers over the next several hours, around 41 degrees for a low overnight tonight. Tomorrow could have more rain, lots of clouds around, highs about 51 degrees, and then more showers for Friday could make it into the 60s. 46 degrees now in Boston at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, providing access to ebooks and research content on the go with the EBSCO mobile app. Information about EBSCO's commitment to researchers is at EBSCO.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are going back to All Things Considered in just a matter of minutes. We are first asking you to please uh, make us proud on this first day of the fun drive because we are counting down in this fundraiser less than an hour to go in order for you to make that match that we have right now to get your gift of support to WBUR matched dollar for dollar. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Bob Oaks. Hi, Lisa. You know, what makes editorial independence, which is really important uh, around the world right now, and you hear it when we hear stories about how news, truthful news, has been repressed in Russia, what gives us editorial independence here at WBUR is your support. The largest share of the money that WBUR receives to help pay for the news comes from folks just like you, listeners to WBUR, consumers of the news on the radio and on the web at wbur.org. It gives us a good chance of having a great fundraiser if we can make the match that's on the table right now actually work for us. But this match that, as Lisa says, doubles any gift that we get right now, monthly gift that we get right now, runs out in 53 minutes. So it'll be gone maybe before you're able to think about it again, which is why we're asking you to make that monthly gift, 10 15 20 50 $100 right now, and have that amount for the news Doubled for WBUR. Editorial independent, strong, comprehensive news is what you're paying for. It's what you're getting. So give while you can take advantage of the match for just less than an hour. 1-800-909-9287 is the pledge line. Or give before the match runs out at WBUR.org. And once again, give $15 a month. The match will turn it into $30 a month. Give $150 a month if you can swing that. That becomes $300 a month for us. So know that your monthly gift will make a big impact on your community. It'll make a big impact on WBUR as well. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. Going back to the news right now, you can still call during the news or still go online during the news and know how important your pledge of any amount is to WBUR, especially during this time when your gift will be matched. Thanks so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jose Mateo Ballet Theatre, presenting Dance Saturdays. Experience Scottish dance and music in Going to the Highlands, Saturday at 7, balletheater.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Scott Detrow in Kiev, Ukraine. I'm standing in central Kiev near Maidan, the monument and public square that was so central to Ukraine's 2014 revolution. Off in the distance, there's a big titanium arch stretched over a park. It's a gift from Russia. 
built in the early 1980s. It's meant to symbolize the friendship between Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, there is no friendship right now. After Russia invaded Crimea and eastern regions, activists painted a big crack across the top of the arch. And this week, with all the details uncovered about Bucha and other Kyiv suburbs, the relationship between the two countries feels much more than cracked. It feels destroyed. The military, what they did, I'm not really sure how quickly I will be able to forgive them or forget this thing. That's Nadia Stasio, who stopped to talk to us. She's 45 and lives in Kyiv, but she's originally from Mariupol, a city in the south under a devastating siege by Russian troops. Her dad is still there, and she hasn't heard from him in a month. I asked Nadia what she thinks should be done with the arch after the war. I think we should keep it just for the sake of remembering that it had happened, you know. We, yeah, we can't destroy it, but what's different it's going to be if we forget it all. So I believe, in my opinion, the best thing is to keep it and have it as a reminder. Not everyone feels as generous. Vladimir Anatolievich is a senior lieutenant in the Ukrainian military. He's out with three of his fellow soldiers. And he has a very specific suggestion for what to do with the arch, but it's not radio-appropriate. There can be no friendship at all. I'm pretty sure about it. The only thing I have left in me is pretty much hatred only. We're never going to be brothers again. At this stage, it's not possible that we're going to be even a good neighbors. Anatolievich says he fought near the town of Bucha before it was liberated. He says he's glad the suburbs north of Kyiv are now in Ukrainian hands, but that there's still a long way to go. And there are still more grim details emerging from those towns every day. NPR's Becky Sullivan went to one of those towns today, Borodyanka. Hey, Becky. Hey. What did you see there? Well, this little town, it's about 50 miles northwest of Kyiv. Ukrainian officials have said that it's another example of what they say is Russia's indiscriminate targeting of civilians and that there there could be quite a few dead people here. Um, the city is on a highway crosswords, which is part of what made it nice for people who live here. It's easy access to Kyiv, but also, of course, for attractive to Russians coming in from Belarus in their attempt to take the capital mm-hmm. city. So today I started at that main crossroads where I could already see some pretty destroyed buildings. And one of the first people I ran into there was Arsen Belevsky, who is the director of a Polish community school in the town. He evacuated after Russian troops arrived and he only just got back in the last few days, but he pointed down the main street and he told me, this used to be a quiet and beautiful place, but if you walk down there now, you'll see some very terrifying things. Um, here's a little bit of him. He's saying that they mined everything. Uh, they mined the doors to houses, entrances to private apartments. And if you walk down the street, you'll see all of these bombed places and just know that there's likely still people there, but they're no longer alive. And he looked down at my camera and he said, there's no photo or video that could capture the atmosphere here right now. And you know what? It turned out to be right. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says that there could be just as many civilians dead in Borodyanka as there are in Bucha. What did you see uh, to back that up? Yeah, it's definitely different than Bucha, I'll say, where the worry is Mm -hmm. more about Russian soldiers shooting civilians indiscriminately on the streets, like execution style. But here in Borodyanka, the, the concern is more about the targeting of civilian buildings. And just to give you a sense, you know, on this main street along a mile or so of it, it's lined with houses and it's lined with also these big Eastern European style apartment blocks that are these long, narrow buildings, six or seven stories tall. 
um, with broad sides facing the street. And so not one, but several of these buildings were hit in the same just kind of shocking way, which are these huge strikes right to the center of the building, leaving each end standing, blackened with the windows blown out, air conditioners hanging down. Um, but then the whole middle of the building is now just a gigantic pile of rubble spilling out onto the street. The, the walls just cleaved away cleanly. And looking at that, it's very hard to imagine people trapped in that surviving. Um, emergency yeah. crews are going through the rubble now, but officials are very pessimistic about the odds of finding anybody alive, and they think that hundreds could be dead. Aside from the devastation, what did people say about the fighting there? Well, the Russians came in very fast, they said, um, and the fighting began on the, just the third or fourth day of the invasion late in February. I spoke to a territorial defense volunteer who said he signed up right away on the 24th. Um, he was an old veteran, so they let him sign up. Um, but unfortunately, the armed forces just couldn't get up there in time and in the numbers needed to really stop that advance. So instead, it was volunteers like him fighting with the arms they had and fighting with Molotov cocktails. And they're just no match for the Russian forces who were then very fresh and the Russian jets coming in and bombing the buildings. And, and the Russians were just able to take this town very easily. And then on the other side, just this last week or two, Russians essentially withdrew on their own. And Ukrainian officials say that Ukraine didn't have to do much fighting to take it back. So Becky, yesterday you saw Bucha, today you saw Borodyanka. A lot of people we're talking to in Ukraine are, are really worried that these towns aren't unique. They're, they're just the places where this devastation can be documented at this point. Do you think that's a valid concern? Oh, I think it, it couldn't be more right. I mean, I, we already know that we're going to see a few more things like this when it's safe to get into places like Mariupol, for instance, um, or there's a few journalists in Kharkiv. We're seeing images coming out of there that are like this. Chernihiv recently liberated, according to Pentagon officials. And these are just the big cities. I think there's going to be a lot more of this. And analysts have warned that as Russia gets more and more desperate to be able to claim a victory, any victory of any kind, that it may intensify this kind of all-out flattening of towns um, in this effort to seize the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine at any cost. NPR's Becky Sullivan here in Kyiv. Thanks so much for your reporting. You're welcome. States across the country are moving to restrict abortion access as the Supreme Court considers overturning Roe v. Wade. Oklahoma's legislature sent a bill to the governor's desk yesterday banning almost all abortions and imposing prison time on abortion providers. Idaho's ban on most abortions will go into effect later this month. Meanwhile, neighboring Oregon, like other liberal states, is preparing to receive an influx of patients seeking abortions. The state recently committed to investing millions of dollars to fortify its abortion infrastructure. Kadia Riddle reports. The Oregon legislature swiftly approved this funding measure, but the advocates behind it say it's part of a strategy they've been advancing for more than a year. This conversation started to take place really immediately after Justice Ginsburg's passing. Christelle Allen is with the group Pro-Choice Oregon. She is part of a coalition that led this legislative effort. The new law allocates $15 million to helping both the patients receiving abortions and the providers facilitating them. This situation that our state has never been in, this country has never been in, is going to require resources and the creation of new best practices. Washington and California are among several states that have also passed laws to strengthen abortion access recently. But the Oregon law is the first of its kind in the nation. 
the money will help pay travel costs for people coming from states like Idaho for abortions. It will also help fund places like the Lilith Clinic in Portland. So we're in our um, recovery area, which has this lovely blue color. Christine Rewer is a medical assistant here. I think this is like the loveliest room in the clinic. It's very calm. We have a little fountain. Patients can take in a bird's eye view of downtown Portland from here while recovering. This is the only clinic in the state that offers later abortions. Rewar says she's committed to this work. I love it. I didn't realize it was what I wanted to do, and then I started doing it, and I was like, oh, this is incredible. This is what I want to do forever. For some, these kinds of clinics are the only option. They come here to end a pregnancy when they find out a fetus has a life-threatening abnormality, for example. And the work has unique challenges. Our door is always locked. We always check, like, ID at the door. I notice you have a security camera here. We do. We have a little nest that points at our front door. Security is one expense the new money could cover. The state of Oregon has designated it for creative uses exactly like this. What we also, though, are concerned about are the, you know, the small percentage of people where, you know, that violence is possible. Mm -hmm. Grayson Dempsey is a spokesperson for the Lilith Clinic. She says security will become paramount if facilities have to close in other states. Protesters across the country will be left with fewer targets. We not only need to hold the line here, but we need to be prepared to be the focus of that attention. Other providers say this new money could lead to systemic changes in the state's health care system. Dr. Helen Belanca was an abortion provider. Then she took a job at a clinic in the town of Hood River, Oregon. I wanted to continue providing abortions in my practice, but that was not possible. Hood River is a small town of orchards and farms. Many of her patients were migrant farm workers. But that clinic was federally funded, and restrictions prevent federal money from paying for abortions. Blanca couldn't offer the procedure to her patients there. I think this fund is so important because it would allow some flexibility for communities to have access to that care. She's since left that job. Belanca says using state dollars to pay abortion costs would offer a workaround to federal restrictions. It's not about not having a clinician willing to perform an abortion. It's about having systems in place and infrastructure in place to provide it. The $15 million from the state could also support telemedicine or help buy ultrasound equipment for rural clinics. Christelle Allen from Pro-Choice Oregon says it's time for states that support abortion to bring a full-court press. This gives us a chance to actually start being an incubator for solutions that we then can help uh, support other states, hopefully, in passing and moving forward. The Supreme Court could overturn Roe in a few months. In that scenario, Oregon could see a more than 200 percent increase in incoming abortion patients from all over the country. That's according to the Abortion Rights Guttmacher Institute. That disruption could set in motion a health care crisis in every state. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon. The Senate could vote as early as tomorrow to confirm Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. A look back at her confirmation tomorrow on Morning Edition. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, Marketplace starts at 6.30. Tonight, the Federal Reserve has purchased over $5.5 trillion worth of bonds since the pandemic. We look at why the Federal Reserve bought the assets in the first place and what getting rid of them could accomplish. 
On Wall Street, stocks slid for a second day today. The Dow lost 0.42%, 145 points, to finish the day at 34,497. S&P gave up about a full percent to close at 4481. The Nasdaq slid 2.25% to finish the day at 13,889. In the forecast, rain, patchy drizzle overnight tonight, dipping a few degrees to about 40. Then for tomorrow... Should have some showers, strong winds, just about 51 degrees. Warmer on Friday, lots of clouds and rain, but should make it to at least 62, maybe the mid-60s on Friday. 46 degrees now in Boston at 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Hi, I'm Eleanor Beardsley from NPR. It's very important that reporters document what is happening on the ground in Ukraine so that you hear the voices and stories of the people affected, not just those in power. NPR is able to bring you coverage from Ukraine because you support this vital work to bear witness. Your donation to this station makes it possible. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And we hope you do that right now because you have just 38 minutes left to take advantage of a great offer on the table on this, the first day of our fun drive. Bob Oaks, tell us about it. It's the match that's on the table for the next 38 minutes until 7 o'clock tonight. Uh, Lisa Mullins, the match from WBUR listeners, generous members of our Morrow Society who are doubling every monthly gift that we get to WBUR have been for a good chunk of this afternoon, but everything comes to an end and the match comes to an end at 7 o'clock. So we're asking you to take advantage of it now to help pay for the news you listen to on WBUR, the comprehensive reporting uh, about abortion you heard just a moment ago, especially when the Supreme Court may rule uh, in, in the coming months with an important decision that could affect Roe v. Wade, a a pledge for that. Pledge especially because we're continuing our coverage of Ukraine. On Point host, Magda Chakrabarty tells us what what a Ukrainian man told her about what he thinks Americans need to understand about the war in his, his country. Here's Magna. What Americans need to understand is that it's not just Ukraine, that anywhere people are trying to stand up and fight for their sovereignty, for democracy. War can come to them, too. And that we have to be aware of that. We have to know that. We have to protect democracies wherever they are to allow them to flourish. Now, I don't necessarily think that he was saying the U.S. has to go and, like, militarily protect those places. But he was asking us to look more broadly, you know, uh, you know at humanity as a whole rather than just in Ukraine. For the important stories for the interesting conversations such as the one Magda Chakrabarty had, such as those you are going to hear on WBUR in the coming days, months, and years. Give to WBUR right now while your pledge can be doubled. That ends, however, the doubling at 7 o'clock tonight. Just 30 minutes 
plus away. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or give online right now and have your pledge doubled at WBUR.org. And when you make a gift to WBUR, what you're doing is supporting editorial independence. Editorial independence uh, and and a free press, free media, are the underpinnings of a democracy. And that gets back to what Megna was talking about with that guest. This is, is a station that is run by you, not by commercial or editorial interests. We are editorially independent. Our stories do not mislead. They don't deceive. They don't carry an agenda other than to inform you, to help you understand, give you context, which is exactly what the stories that you've been hearing this evening, including the ones that you just heard uh, from Ukraine, are doing. So pledge your support for it, whatever it's worth to you. If you can do $10 a month right now, that would be matched, that will be matched dollar for dollar by generous members of the Murrow Society. If you can swing a contribution of $100 a month, that becomes $200 a month for us. The number again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Just 35 minutes to go before this uh, uh, offer on the table disappears, this dollar-for-dollar uh, dollar match. That's right. It's 625 right now, which means there are just 35 minutes left in this match. It ends at 7 o'clock. If WBUR is an essential in your life, then we're asking you right now to make a monthly contribution to WBUR that reflects how important this station is to you. If that's $10 a month, then give it. If it's 20, then give it. If it's 50 or 100, then give that amount. Whatever you give is doubled right now, thanks to the Morrow Society members who are matching every pledge for the next 34 minutes until 7 o'clock, dollar for dollar match on the first day of the fun drive. So important to have a great first day because it sets the tone for what we're able to do for the listener support we're able to get beyond yours in the days ahead. Give us the momentum by giving your pledge on this day one before the match comes to an end at 7 p.m. The number to call is 1-800-909-9287. The web address to go to is wbur.org. Make the pledge. Please do make the pledge right now as we have this matching uh, offer on the table right now. Your pledge, whatever it is, will be matched dollar for dollar with a monthly pledge. 1-800-909-9287-wbur.org. Thank you so much. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. On farms across the country, it's fertilizer that grows the crops that keep grocery shelves stocked and small towns alive. But fertilizer also contains chemicals that can leach into nearby drinking water. As David Condos of the Kansas News Service reports, when it comes time to clean up that water, some small towns struggle with the costs. In most parts of the country, you can turn on just about any faucet and expect water that's clear, clean, and relatively cheap. But as chemicals leach into rural water supplies, a growing number of small towns face a different and very expensive reality. Take Haviland, Kansas, a town of about 700 people. Fifteen years ago, its drinking water went over the federal limit for nitrate, a chemical in most farm fertilizers. So the state made Haviland build a water treatment plant. The price tag? $2.5 million, or roughly $3,500 per resident. 
Inside the plant, former Mayor Robert Ellis walks through a maze of pipes toward a small meter on the wall. Now this is showing what our nitrates are right now, 8.4. Today, Haviland's water is cleaner, safer, but Ellis says that when most residents see the plant, they just think about how much it's costing them each month. They've been drinking out of the garden hose for all their lives. They don't worry about the nitrates. All they look at is their water bill. And those water bills have just about tripled. Dozens of nearby towns have found themselves in a similar situation, caught between massive costs and small budgets, and between the way traditional farming sustains their economies while channeling unwanted chemicals into their drinking water. Bigger cities already have sophisticated treatment plants to remove those chemicals, but most small towns don't. Historically, the water they pump from underground has been pure enough to drink without being treated. But in many places, that's no longer true and towns like Haviland are left to pick up the multi-million dollar tab. And it's not just in Kansas. Nitrate contaminates drinking water in farming regions from California to Pennsylvania. An Iowa State University study shows that since the 1940s, the use of nitrogen fertilizer nationwide has increased 34-fold. We can't be surprised that we have increasing levels of nitrate in our water when we know that we're putting down increasing amounts of nitrogen on the land. David Swirtney is an environmental health researcher at the University of Iowa and says tap water standards put in place more than two decades ago aren't stringent enough. New research shows drinking nitrate for years can lead to cancer and birth defects, even at concentrations below current limits. But even if every farmer stopped fertilizing tomorrow, it could take decades for the nitrates already in underground water supplies to dissipate. And for farm towns that have not seen nitrate levels increase yet, researchers say it's likely just a matter of time. Three years ago, Rod Huffman got his own dreaded letter from the state. One of the water wells in his small town of Oakley, Kansas, had too much nitrate. We're at well six, which was over the MCL limit. Oakley could try to push back against the regulators and buy some more time. But as nitrate levels keep going up, Huffman says there's no point in delaying the inevitable. He says his town will build its own plant, and in preparation, has already doubled residents' water bills. It's not going to be cheap, but it's cheaper than not doing nothing at all. You know, it's just not going to get any better. And with fertilizer still a critical part of farming, he expects more rural towns to face this challenge soon. For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Oakley, Kansas. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fly Homes, empowering homeowners to put the proceeds from the sale of their current home toward the down payment on their next one before selling. Learn more at flyhomes.com. The Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at sullivantire.com.